Hey, what's up, everyone? This is the Heart Guy Media Podcast. I am your host, Jesse HS, and today we are going to be talking about one of my favorite directors of all time, Wes Craven. Truly, you know, as we've said, we've not at this point, you know, we've talked about, you know, mainly the big four a lot when it comes to directors. We've talked uh, a little bit of John Carpenter. Um, an episode on the review of his show, his musical tour, which uh, myself and friends have attended. Um, the review, and we're going to kind of talk John Carpenter a little bit. That episode's coming up. We've done uh, the George Romero episode was our very first episode, and it was just me kind of discussing what I think George's impact it has been, what it's meant to all of his fans uh and the kind of impact that he made um and then toby hooper you know both george and toby passed this year we did uh, a toby hooper episode with john angle <clears throat> and we're going to be doing this one with john angle because john actually has an interesting Wes craven story um and uh Wes is near and dear to you know our love for film uh obviously directing some of the most memorables uh for us you know nightmare on elm street last house on the left shocker new nightmare uh just there's hills have eyes i mean there's there's endless amounts of films uh that we're gonna get into that's gonna be really fun to kind of pay tribute to west because west i mean 69 he died at 69 of uh you know a brain tumor that he really didn't uh discuss with anybody he didn't let anybody know that 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 he was that ill or anything um and he kind of died suddenly and no one really knew he was sick so it kind of hit it hit pretty hard not knowing that he was going to you know one day you wake up and Wes Craven's dead and you don't know these people personally um they do have an impact on your life they do you know when they've made films that you've grown up with and learned life from, so to speak, it uh, it does make an impact, especially once they're gone. So it's definitely something that's... I don't know. It's, it's, it was strange when Wes died. Uh, I think we are all in shock, all of our friends, just because we... You don't ever think you're going to get to that point where, you know, the option of having another Wes Craven film wasn't there. Uh, because it would never not been an option before. So, but we're going to try to keep it a little bit upbeat and just talk about the imprint that he left. And, and truly, uh, you know, so much to talk about with him. Uh, but anyway, I hope everyone had a very nice Thanksgiving. Uh I know I did. I went out on Black Friday, shopped a little bit. Uh, Thursday night, got some movies and uh, some other goodies. So that was uh, that was really awesome to uh, get in on some deals and not get into fistfights with people. So that's always uh, that's always something that's nice to escape the uh, the Black Friday shopping with not getting into any fights with anyone. Um. But we are going to uh, get John on the horn. And, uh, yeah, we're going to dive in and get some Wes Craven talk done. Hey, what's up, brother? Hey, can you hear me? 
I can hear you loud and clear. I'm here, man. So. Folding laundry like any cool 29-year-old on a Sunday. There you go. Now, uh, how was your Thanksgiving? It was, it was nice. It was pretty quiet. Aaliyah was with her dad, and uh, so Bree and I just stayed, stayed in. Um, you know, Bree cooked for us, but we had to work the next day. Did you have to work the next day too? Right? Sure did. Yeah. So we didn't want to. We didn't want to venture far. So yeah. So we just stayed in and had a quiet dinner. How about you, though, dude? Yeah, it was nice, relaxing. Went and did some Black Friday shopping. Hey, let me see that poster behind you. Right there. Oh, that's that's sweet. I love that. Yeah. So, we're talking Wes. You're damn right. So, first of all, what was the first... What's the first Wes movie you saw? Wait a second. Are we recording right now? Oh, yeah. We're live as shit. Oh, so that... The- that whole spiel about Thanksgiving, is it going to be on here? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, thanks a lot, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, the question, first Craven movie I ever saw um, was definitely 100% Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, but the second one, probably right around the same time, video rental store era, was uh, People Under the Stairs. Yeah. Which, uh, now it's... it's an amazing film. Now, he's got such, I mean, we've obviously, we've talked Romero, we've talked a little bit of Carpenter, we've talked Toby. Now, those are the big four, for sure, is Romero, Hooper, Craven, Carpenter. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, and then you get into your, no disrespect to them, but, you know, the the tier after that, probably like a Joe Dante, you know, Larry Cohen, those, but uh, I definitely think that those are the big four of our uh, certainly of our generation i know other generations probably our parents you know um had universal monsters and things and i'm sure there were different directors like hitchcock and william castle and you know but for us certainly those are the big four that's there's no doubt now i guess we'll go i i mean we're obviously huge nightmare on elm street fans the whole franchise but thinking about what a phenomena the the entire uh series became you know it all stems from the original obviously that original idea that Wes had which is well documented where you know the idea of like Freddy Krueger came from or was a bum in the street that like was staring at him and he kind of had that 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 Krueger yeah that sinister look yeah to him and the the fact that the guy was a like a bum or or a hobo or whatever and clearly took uh took took uh a lot of interest and fun in in scaring someone player. yeah yeah um but you know when you talk about Wes you know let, I guess we'll start we'll start at like you know at the very beginning one of his breakout well something that's interesting about him that I love and he's such a it's such a he, he's such a unique filmmaker in the sense that he never saw anything other than disney movies until he was a senior in college is that true yeah he never 
So, See, I learn new stuff all the time. I never, I, I, I was never aware of that. Yeah, he was. He grew up in obviously like a very like uh, religious household. So he he said, uh, you know, seeing any going to the movie was uh, was considered sinful unless they were Disney movies, which he said, you know, I saw pretty much like one movie a year, whatever Disney put out, like. That's what I saw. And he didn't see any other film until he was uh, a senior in college. That, yeah, that that's absolutely amazing because you see the majority of these people, you hear stories that, you know, we talked to Carpenter recently, sort of grew up in the cinema, you know, just, uh, just watched everything they possibly could. So it's pretty fascinating that, that might. Had- that ex- um, such a successful director with so little exposure to cinema. Yeah, it almost it almost makes you think that all those years, those formative years where he could have been exposed to all that stuff, it was simply all bottled up, and then it didn't get ex- it didn't it wasn't he wasn't able to exploit or explore that and and launch it onto a canvas which obviously was you know his filmmaking canvas until he was you know in his mid early to mid 20s so it you almost want to think that because he didn't see those films or get exposed to that kind of culture or any kind of uh filmmaking culture outside of animated disney films that that once he did, he had the ability to actually, and was old enough to make movies, so all that youthfulness, I feel like he always kept, and he was able to kind of paint paint on all of his film canvases. You know, he just bottled all that up for years, so when it exploded, it exploded hard with, like, Last House on the Left. Obviously, the one of the most extreme movies up until that point, and probably still one of the most extreme, brutal movies of all time. Oh, for sure, and I think that that um, that film seemed to launch the whole. Um, well, I don't know necessarily. I don't know the order, but it, that was, uh, you know, in, in the vein of you know, I spit on your grave. But that now it, you don't really hear Wes getting a lot of credit for it. But you know, that sort of rape revenge film. I feel like one of the earliest examples of that was Last House on the Left. Probably one of the, the more uh, prolific examples of it. So, you know, he definitely gets credited for creating Freddy Krueger, but um, obviously, but he he did some other things, a lot of other things that that probably influenced a lot of people that he doesn't necessarily get credited for. And uh, that that last house on the left, like you said, still to this day, um, one of the most disturbing, emotional horror films you'll ever see. You know, particularly, uh, you know, you become a parent, and it's just like, oh, you just it just something about it, you know, the whole thing just disturbs you. Yeah, and obviously, in something that we obviously know too, but for anybody else, I love the little, you know, you can't say homage because it this was pre this is predating the Freddy Krueger character, but I love that David Hess's character's name is Krug in Last House on the Left, which obviously has got to be, you know. Harken, it harkens back to that childhood bully that Wes claims that, you know, Freddy Krueger was named after. Yeah, and, and of all uh, of all of Craven's films, and obviously he had a, a very extensive uh, filmography, 
even though he, he didn't necessarily live the longest of lives, you know, it's just not like Roman Polanski's age or anything, but, um, of all the things, uh, all the monsters he created, I still think Krug is probably one of the scariest because he's not supernatural. Um, you know, he's not, he's not hiding behind a mask. He's just this disgusting, villainous, criminal rapist that's just out in the open, almost really sort of flaunting it, you know, when he finds out, hey, I just raped and murdered your daughter, and then he ends up at their their house. It, there's just something so real about him as a character. I think that he's, to me, he's one of the scariest uh, villains of all of Craven's films. Oh, he's one heinous cocksucker, for sure, and that, and David has portrayed him so, like, perfectly, uh, he really did. He's just, you know, Hess was known for, um, I think that's probably one of his earlier, I'm not really sure. I know David Hess had a long, uh, history. He was a singer songwriter. I, I, I think he even composed the music for last house on the left, but I knew he did some stuff for Elvis and things. It's just, uh, but, but he sort of made a career out of those gritty grimy roles and i think last house in the left sort of launched that and then you saw him you know last house in the park or what have you and uh just sort of embraced that that role that began with krug and uh david has passed away in 20 i think 2011 or something like that i think he was in his mid 70s so uh r.i.p david has uh kind of underrated when you think about like the impact that Last House on the Left had made and, you know, how, what a pivotal role he played and how important that character was to that story, you know, having that all the ultimate fucking villain, um, you know, and like you said, that, that more or less launched that whole subgenre of horror films that I think Craven doesn't get credited for. And obviously, if, if Cra- with Craven not being fully credited, uh, you know, David Hess uh, doesn't either for portraying that role as well as he did. Yeah, for sure. I think that, uh, I think even though we, uh, you know, we revere those four directors as the big four, um, and I know on the Toby episode we talk about how in some ways he was the forgotten fourth member of that group. I, I feel probably Carpenter gets the most love of the big four, and, and a big reason for that is he worked exclusively really within the uh, the studio system. All his films after you know his early work, you know people recognized, oh man, this guy is making making mucho money on his movies. So. Uh, they snatched him up, you know, Abco Embassy and what have you. But Craven, I feel like uh, Craven, Romero, a, a lot of guys that just made a lot of great films that didn't get as m- much exposure and as uh, much recognition as they deserve, I think, largely because they just weren't, typically they weren't huge, big budget releases, but all the more impressive that Wes was able to make such good films um, on such shoestring budgets. And, uh, yeah, and it really is, you know, this film even obviously, uh, predates, uh, The Exorcist too, which this film was one of those films that shocked audiences where you were hearing about people friggin' having panic attacks and things while seeing the film and stuff. And, you know, just keep telling yourself it's only a movie type thing, you know, that, that was like the, that was the freight, the trade, the, what do you call it? The tagline, right? Yeah. Absolutely, and uh, so, honey, I'll be right out. Um, so to think yeah, that that 
that even, you know, you when you think Exorcist gets like all the credit for like being the first like theatrical like uh like scare fest like that where it just like was shocking audiences. West was doing that even before, you know, the Exorcist w- was doing it. Yeah, and you, and you have to think too, Wes. Uh, you know, on that note, I know obviously we've got a lot to cover as far as his filmography, but also another note on uh, Last House on the Left. In a lot of ways, um, um, that ultimately gave us Friday the Thirteenth because Sean Cunningham was, um, you know, somebody that was had partnered up with Craven early on. Uh, they worked together, and Steve Miner as well. What's that? Steve Miner as well. Yeah, absolutely. Very much the case, yep. And that's so you look at a lot of, you know, Friday the 13th and then, you know, the early Friday the 13th entries and Halloween H2O and look at all these great films that these guys did. And it's a lot of these guys got their start early on, you know, Cunningham working on Last House on the Left. And then um, because of that collaboration and, and, and what that was able to achieve, um, you know, what was it Paramount had? you know, made Friday the 13th and, and then be, Cunningham becomes a, a front runner to direct that and the rest is history. So, uh, even something like that is, uh, often overlooked, but that was, that was Craven's influence. Yeah. And then, you know, a few years later you have another film that was quite shocking. The Hills have eyes legendary film. Yeah. One, definitely one of my favorite Craven films. Um, I know a lot of people probably feel similarly, but, uh, j- just so great because y- they they didn't cheap out. It wasn't uh, let's th- you know bring in a freaking uh, truckload of sand onto a set somewhere and just make it seem like you know d- light it real dark and pretend they're up in the the freaking desert in the mountains. But you know they didn't do that. It was very very real. It was shot on location. It was hotter than shit out in the desert. They all felt like they were dying. <laughs> out there and it, it's just you can feel that that feeling of isolation and and how you, you know you're in this ravine almost surrounding by surrounded by these hills if you will and just that feeling of being watched um it, being helpless you know your vehicle is disabled and you know you're getting picked off it's it's just such an amazing film yeah and you have uh you know, obviously, Michael Berry, man, just looks like you couldn't have cast that part any better. Yeah, no, he's he's creepy as hell. Um, again, I don't know chronologically, but I think, was it before that? or You know, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Michael Berryman just has that, it, it, like you said, just perfectly cast. He just is very creepy looking you know and he sort of capitalized on his own look to sort of make a career out of it but certainly wouldn't have had a career without last house on the left yeah um and i know craven cast him craven was very loyal to you know people that he was close with cast him in a couple other films i know one being deadly blessing there with brooke shields um yep but yeah just definitely definitely perfectly cast as one of the the main villains there yeah and that was you know obviously d wallace that was uh a huge role for her that you know that put her in the in the runnings at that point after that you know as uh someone who was looked at that can handle that kind of role for this type of genre film so that definitely you know she threw her name in the hat with that performance Oh, for sure, absolutely, and that um, 
you said, in a lot of ways, sort of launched her becoming a scream queen and, you know, did so many awesome things after that, you know, freaking critters and Cujo and the howling and so on and so forth. But yeah, I think she, uh, she owes a debt of gratitude to, to Wes for casting her, um, because, you know, she's still working today. She's still pumping stuff out, you know, Lords of Salem. She's, you know, tight with Rob Zombie. So you'd have to think that that all stems from Craven. And, you know, you talk about these cannibal movies, too. The Hills Have Eyes, you know, predates, like, all the the cannibal movie craze. Like, you know, like, the wrong turns of the world and, uh, what, I don't even know what the fuck else is, like, you know what I mean? Those, like... You and I aren't huge cannibal fans, but you're right. That's, it's, the guy's setting himself up, all these different genres that he's, these sub-genres of horror that he explored before most people did. It was sort of uncharted territory, and I know, you know, the Italians, those guys did those, you know, freaking Holocaust films and shit, but um, I think there's... there's a classiness, if that makes sense, to, to Wes's films. He doesn't rely on overt violence. Um, there was I always know. a even even in the most brutal of scenes, there was always an intellect, and he was never he was never insulting to his audience, even in those brutal like you know, you know, it was never as as yeah. like primal as like you know the hills have eyes could be. It was never stupid. Absolutely, and that's I wish that more directors today embrace that. But I also think that's a reflection of, you know, audiences and their expectations and their attention spans and what have you. I don't think, um, I think people demand all the blood and guts and violence, but his early stuff, like you said, there, there's a, there's so much intelligence to it. I think that goes back to the fact that, that Wes was, uh, a, a really educated guy. He was a college professor in upstate New York, you know. So he he was very eloquent, well spoken. If you ever listen to his commentary tracks, you you can tell that he was passionate about what he did. And so um, I definitely think there's an intelligence to his films that he doesn't get credit for, and that uh, a lot of other people never incorporated into their films. Like you said, it's just, there's just, it's so smart. He wrote all these films and, um, they're just amazing to this day. So we'll kind of glaze over until we hit like, you know, the highlighted points in his life. But, uh, you know, as far as his filmography goes, but two films, I didn't really see a lot, um, growing up. And I honestly didn't see summer of fear until you told me about it. Um, but Summer of Fear in 78, and then we had Deadly Blessing in 81. What are your thoughts on Summer of Fear? Uh, so Summer of Fear, from my understanding, I believe that was that that was written by Duncan, who also wrote um, I Know What You Did Last Summer. So somebody that was pretty prolific uh, in, in that horror novelization industry, they, they, they took that work and i think craven had a pretty decent relationship with linda blair yeah i think part of him uh, I, I don't i'm just speculating i don't know if he ever came out and said this but you know she certainly had her struggles being typecast after the exorcist her career struggled she was starring in a lot of low budget horror films and you know whatever the case may be but so from my understanding he cast her in that that was a made for tv movie if i'm not mistaken yeah, and, and I actually really enjoy it. I think it's, 
I, I think it's a lot of fun, honestly. I know they just it just got some love recently. They just released it on Blu-ray, I think. But um, I think that's a, that's a really fun movie. It's again, it's it's exploring something. Yeah, it had, in the vein of like uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you have somebody, and you know, there's witchcraft elements and stuff. But they're expecting one girl to come, and somebody else, like Changeling style, shows up and. Um, yeah, I think that movie's great. I really enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, so, thoughts on uh, Deadly Blessing? Uh, Deadly Blessing it is... No, I was thinking... Uh, I got it confused. Deadly, that's Deadly Friend with Christy Swanson. Yeah, yeah. That, de- yeah. Deadly Blessing, the, the one with sort of the, the Amish folks. Yep, and Sharon, um, Sharon Stone's in it. Yeah, that, that one, too. That's another one that's... Um, that I think is is one of his probably lesser seen films, but again, a, a lot of fun. Shot on location, you know, you can tell that it's you know some I don't know where it was at, but it looks like some you know old farm, and um, yeah, that that was that was definitely a fun one. I don't, I, I think that's one that's a little atypical of him. That's not, it doesn't feel necessarily like a Wes Craven film in, in a lot of respects, but yeah, I agree, uh, definitely. Uh, Definitely a lot of fun. Not a whole lot of violence. It, it's sort of a, more of like a mystery. I feel like obviously there's you know some other elements. Ernest Borgnine's in it from you know he did a million things, but I just saw him recently in Escape from New York. Reminded me, um, uh, to, he was great in it. Though he definitely had some some very talented actors and actresses in that film. Like uh, and up to this point, uh, you know how, how crazy is it to think like obviously he he had precursed uh some of these subgenres and stuff and touched on this stuff before these subgenres before they of this of horror before they became so popular but then you think up into this point up until the early 80s he'd already worked with people who would become go on to have like great careers you think about obviously last house and left sean cunningham like went on to create and you know help curate the friday the 13th uh you know spectacle then you have, you know, he's worked with Linda Blair, who was like, you know, still, like, it's only like five or so years removed from The Exorcist, so that was still hot, and she was like, you know, so known for that. And then Deadly Blessing, working with Sharon Stone, Sharon Stone obviously going on to have like quite a career, and then Dee Wallace obviously being such a genre darling as well. So it seems like all these people were getting in on the on the Wes Craven train uh, early on, whether it be by uh, design or not exactly and and there's a lot once you start delving into it there's a lot of people that really benefited career-wise from being cast in a, in a craven film early on um even robert england you know yeah he'd done a few things he'd done that television series v i think um you know he was in toby hooper's uh eaten alive but you know robert england doesn't have a career right now as far as i'm concerned without Wes craven he he made an entire career oh absolutely that Kruger character, and then, you know, every other role he ever got was in direct relation to people saying, oh, wow, he's super scary as, you know, Freddy Krueger. So there, there really is no Robert Englund, you know, having a five-mile-long autograph line at um, these conventions we go to if it's not for um, for Wes Craven. Absolutely. So, yeah, you're right. He had a huge influence on the horror industry and there's a lot of people whose careers either he revitalized 
or you know because even even later on sort of with with beginning with new nightmare and scream and you know re reintroducing certain people to the mainstream or whether just outright creating stars like jamie kennedy and you know some of these other young folks matthew lillard and just creating stars out of virtual unknowns the guy is just you know when when you get cast in a craven film it's like cha-ching this is this is good stuff you know oh yeah now swamp next up swamp thing uh this is a movie and, and a whole, you know, the whole lure and the whole character of, you know, like Alec Holland and, you know, Swamp Thing. Like, I always loved it. It's something I grew up with. Um, this film, like the animated series, the sci-fi, like original series, um, all those. I always loved the Swamp Thing character. And, uh, you know, obviously, Adrian Barbeau has, you know, she was obviously married and has a kid with carp who plays in his band um yeah but and then she obviously had worked with romero on um creep show and she'd worked with uh craven on, on swamp thing and swamp thing is is such a fun movie and it's what are your thoughts on swamp thing well you know to touch on it like you just mentioned adrian barbeau to me is the ultimate scream queen you know you see certain people get a lot of love like jamie lee curtis yada and uh, um, not to shit on what they accomplished but uh, adrian barbeau like you said you're talking one of the few actresses who you know married to john carpenter was in numerous of his films you know i just watched her recently and someone's watching me which she made which Carpenter made before Halloween and then just watched her in escape from New York. And, you know, obviously the fog probably being her, her biggest carp role. You've, you've got her working in, in Romero's movie. She was in two evil eyes that he did. She was in creep show. Like you said, um, and, and here she is working with Craven on, on freaking swamp things. So, uh, what, what masterful casting, because there's not a lot of people that were as beautiful as Adrian Barbeau that could also give you that, uh, that genuine believability that, Hey, she's super kick ass and she can, she can destroy you. You know what I mean? So she's just, that was an, that was an awesome casting choice. And I just think that that film's a lot of fun. Um, that's one of those where it's, it's not scary in the least. It's just an action film, but it's, it's just, it's great. Those two little kids were freaking hilarious. I don't remember their character names, but they were great. Such a good casting choice. Um, everything about it. I think Ray wise, you know, he was, he, he was good. Matt, um, yeah, even they, they freaking even had Harry Manfredini doing the score, which was awesome. And then you know, with the the comic book sort of transitions, a la you know Creep Show, I just think that 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 movie is so much fun. Um, and again, it's it's not even something I, I don't think most people even associate that with Wes Craven. Yeah, they uh, almost probably, forget that. I don't even know he directed it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we got to talk about the the DVD controversy because I know that you had finally hunted me down a copy of the version that is the unedited version that's still rated PG that was initially released that they had pulled because Adrian Barbeau obviously had a topless scene. It, yeah, I don't I don't know how that came to be, but for whatever reason MGM released it um released an uncut unedited version of it which in, in when i say uncut and unedited i don't i really don't think there were I, i'm not even sure i don't think there was any other scenes in it other than that, that no one. i think it was just that yeah well, it wasn't like a whole different version but it was enough to to piss people off um because you know 
people think it's unique to 2017 that people are, you know, getting pissed off about everything. And no, it's been going on for ages. People were advocating against, you know, Silent Night, Deadly Night. They were advocating against uh, <laughs> Swamp Thing when it came out. Oh, this can't be Pete. This can't be parental guidance. Freaking Adrian Barbo topless in here. So <laughs> from my understanding, MGM recalled all those, um, all those DVDs and, and, you know destroyed the ones that they could actually get their hands on but they were already on store shelves at that point so so people already bought them and it's it's a little late then you can't go to people's houses and 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 steal back their movies so you know certain video rental stores already had it you know i found myself a copy at at an fye ages ago and then i found a copy for you actually up when i was visiting the black christmas house in toronto there was an old school video rental store um which now we think of as that's such a dinosaur they actually just last year i was there like uh, about a year ago uh, a video rental store was going out of business selling off their stock and sure as shit they had that version of swamp thing which has you know a distinct cover so i knew it was that one and yeah i picked you that up and you know there are copies floating around people that managed to snag them before mgm recalled them and destroyed them but yeah then they re-released it and even scream factory's recent re-releases is the that edited version without the without any nudity in it. Yeah. Uh so we'll uh we'll cruise along to right before Elm Street. So uh another movie you introduced me to that was kinda that's deep in Wes's catalog, another T V movie, Invitation to Hell. <laughs> yeah, that one uh <laughs> I don't remember her name, but the woman there that is, is is widely known as a as a, a soap opera actress. You know, I remember growing up and seeing her when my mom was watching soap operas. You know, I think she's made a career out of that. Uh, whatever her name is, her being the character, <laughs> I think that one's actually kind of hilarious. Honestly, disrespect to Craven because I, I like it. I think it's a lot of fun, but it's it, it really is more of a comedy than anything because the whole premise is. Uh, <laughs> sort of ludicrous i it has to do with you know a country club where they're you know transforming people and you know at the spa or whatever it's it's just complete craziness but that's another one that i think is just a lot of just a lot of fun it's a good time yeah it's not like uh again it's not like one of his like standout features that's like broke barriers or anything like that but you know it's definitely an entertaining and uh fun entry in his uh filmography yeah and it's it's hard to you know knock it out of the park every single time and and when you uh, the more success you have the higher expectations people have for you uh when you're releasing stuff you know they think every freaking movie you're gonna put out is gonna be um you know is gonna be something as seminal as uh you know, a last house on the left or a hills have eyes. And it just doesn't always work out that way. So um, I think Craven just had a lot of fun with his career, made his own type of movies. And, um, you know, you have to respect him for that. Oh, absolutely. So what do you think of Hills Have the Hills Have Eyes 2? Because I, I liked it. Obviously, it's not the first one. But, you know, it was, uh, wasn't was anything to write home about, I, I didn't think. Yeah, I think my, my view of that one was definitely influenced by Craven himself, because before I even saw it, I remember reading 
because that one wasn't, you know, for me, that wasn't something that was as readily available as some of the others. A lot of those, a lot of the films we've already mentioned, I didn't see until much later, like within the last, you know, 10 years, uh, for sure, you know, five to 10 years, whereas some of the stuff was readily available. You know, I remember being a kid and, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street and people, you know, um, people under the stairs, things like that. Those were available right at the video rental store. A lot of these deadly blessing and, um, you know, that, that one in particular, I never saw it anywhere. So it wasn't, it wasn't until much later on that I even saw Hills Have Eyes 2. I finally snagged a copy somewhere. And I just remember before I even watched it, Craven saying, yeah, yeah, it's a piece of shit. And he was basically disowning it and just came right out and said, Hey, listen, I was, you know, I need some freaking money. So I, <laughs> you know, that was, that was one that, uh, it could easily, a sequel could easily be made. It could be low budget. I just brought some BMXers out into the desert and stuff. So I went in thinking it was going to be shitty just based on what he himself said about it. And then, so I think that influenced me a little bit, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not too hot on it. I watch it occasionally. Um, you know, they brought back Michael Berryman, who, for all accounts, was dead in the, in the original film. You know, the dog killed him, but then they bring him back because um, he's sort of an iconic character. And then you have the, the brother from the first one flashing back, and which seemed to be – that was one of the more annoying <laughs> – filming techniques that they used to do i remember it was like you know with the friday the 13th films like here's the last 10 minutes of the last entry it's like no i don't this is fucking annoying you know yeah but they're just padding it but yeah i thought that was it was kind of lame honestly but so i mean we could go one or two eggs right now do you want to save nightmare on elm street and then cup it together with you know that one and then and and new nightmare and we could save that towards the end and we could just run through the films that kind of popped up in between those two. Yeah, sure. Let's do it that way. Because obviously, we're going to have the most to say about his obviously his 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 famous monster. For sure. So, uh, did Chiller TV movie that was okay? I, I didn't see that until recently. Honestly, the last five or so years. Deadly Friend though was uh, I think it's actually one of his more underrated films. Uh, obviously, you have Christy Swanson. Um, it's such a unique concept. Uh, the writers, I think, uh, I can't remember the woman's name who wrote on it, but I do remember Bruce Joel Rubin. Uh, but that is such a fun movie. You have, uh, you have the mom, mom from the Goonies in it and Ramsey. Oh yeah. One of the greatest death scenes ever, which is completely awesome and hilarious. Oh yeah. With the freaking like the mop pole and the basketball spinning on it or whatever. That was great. And you had the, yeah, you had yeah. the Zach Galligan ripoff kid, the, the one kid, I can't think of his name. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But yeah, that's such a, it's such a interesting idea for a film. And the fact that like, to think it's a Wes Craven film, like I said, Wes never really had like Wes had a style, but then at the same time, Wes didn't have a style. Because he, he could stretch himself so, like, so, to, to like, uh, yeah, on such different levels where you can't pinpoint, like, his style because he was so well-versed in doing different kinds of films. Yeah, you're right. He was 
you never could pinpoint what he was going to do next. You know, some of his stuff was genuinely disturbing and very dark and sinister, like, uh, you know, uh, a last house on the left or people under the stairs, like I'm sure we'll get to. And, that, and a lot of it was, it was much more lighthearted and comedic, um, like the, like invitation to hell. And, um, and deadly friend was sort of in between. It certainly wasn't a comedy, but it was, it was, it was definitely a fun, uh, a fun entry. Christy Swanson was awesome in it. Um, I'm assuming that was post, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but, you know that that was just, no uh, that was a fun and i know you mentioned chiller um but real brief to t- briefly to touch on that that's one of my all-time favorites chiller um just because it was a made for tv movie again and it was it was just something that people don't associate with him but it had jill sholin in it michael beck from uh you know who was swan and the warriors that was a fun one and it's just it, it's just cool that the guy had so many fun films in his filmography that people are still discovering today just because they've you know, weren't so widely available at one point, but now in the DVD age and the Blu-ray age, you have companies like Vinegar Syndrome and shit uh, releasing films that are just super obscure, and um, so so people are getting exposed to, to things now in this digital age that they didn't before. Yeah, no, no, Deadly Friend was actually pre Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So again, that may be you know I, I would say obviously Buffy. Is a, is a much more well recognized film of hers, and who knows? Maybe the producers of that film, the director of that film, cast her based on her performance in Deadly Friend because she does have a wide range. You know, where she goes from, you know, some spoilers here, but when you know she goes from she's the living girl to then she's the dead girl, and it's there's there's definitely a, a range of emotions she has to play and. And maybe they saw that and said, hey, this girl could be good for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And maybe that's sort of responsible for launching her career. Who can say, you know, so maybe it was maybe it was the 18 second scene in Ferris Bueller's Day Off where she said his best friend's brother, sister's boyfriend's uh, blah, 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 blah. Talking about (laughs) Ferris Bueller being sick, literally her only scene in there. But I always remember that. it could be, man. It could be. Who the hell knows? Now, did you see any of Wes's Twilight Zone? When when Twilight Zone came back, did you see any of the episodes he did? Because he did five. And I, I knew he did some Twilight Zone episodes, but I didn't know he did five episodes. Well, I can tell you I've seen them all now. You know, I, I, I honestly had never um, seen them previously. I've seen them all now. And uh, his episodes tend to be a lot of fun. Um, that, that, that whole Twilight Zone reboot was a lot of fun because it was in the 80s. I know they've done it a couple times now since the you know the Rod Sterling show. They've rebooted it again, I think, you know, in the 90s or something. But the 80s one was a lot of fun because it was a lot of genre directors that that us fans know and love now. Like Tommy Lee Wall, you can watch some of his episodes. Freaking Tommy Lee Wallace is directing episodes. And you get to see a lot of faces like, you know, Bradley Gregg, Eyeball Chambers, and, you know, the kid from Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. You see a lot of those people pop up in those Twilight Zone episodes. So it's just like, wow, this is fun. These are, it kind of feels like, you know, abbreviated versions of, of the films that, you know, we grew up loving in the 80s. It's a lot of familiar faces. And so... Uh, Craven had some good ones, and I'm trying to think. Um, I would have to look real quick to see uh, to see, see which ones. But I remember one um, where everyone starts speaking in jumbled up words, and then um, the one guy 
feels like, okay, what's happening to the world? But they're looking at him like he's the crazy one because he's the only one who's speaking English anymore. Yeah. Um, just, just a lot of like really random shit. Um, but a lot of fun. Have you, have you gotten a chance to see any of those yet? I'm not going to lie. I haven't seen any of them. Well, the good news is for, um, for anybody who's interested, they did for a while. They were out of print, and they cost a fortune. Um, and they're not anymore. They've been recently re- re-released. So uh, yeah, you can you can get these for you can get those. There's only a couple seasons of it, um, but you can you can get them for next to nothing. No shit. Yeah. So moving on from that, we're obviously going to come back for the Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, talk but you know then you have serpent and the rainbow kind of like an odd film for him as well um which didn't doesn't seem odd after you know once uh you people under the stairs comes out a few years later but serpent and the rainbow uh you know you're talking about voodoo and black magic and you know you know like tra- traditional like you know zombie in like you know the mysticism of like voodooism and stuff uh it's really uh it's really an interesting film that he decided to like go and make as well. It was such a different for the time for sure. Yeah, and you know, it like you said, I think one of the things that really sets that film apart is that, you know, thanks to George Romero and his, you know, his contributions to the horror genre, we we've, we've obviously seen a million gajillion zombie films if you will. Uh I, that was for me. I'm not saying that it necessarily was the first one, but I can tell you for me it was the first traditional zombie film I'd ever seen. You know, not the flesh-eating ghouls of, of Romero's films, but actually, you know, what they defined as a zombie, you know, like you said, with voodooism and, and you know, the that sort of shit that was going on. Um, I, I had never seen anything like that, and honestly, I had never really been aware of, of that that sort of, you know, that Haitian voodooism and how they're, you know, drugging people and these witch doctors and they're called zombies because they act like they're dead, but they're still breathing. And I had never freaking heard of any of that. So until, until Serpent in the Rainbow. So in a a lot of ways, I feel like that was sort of, um, that was very innovative in and of itself is tackling that genre from a different angle, you know, the, the zombie, uh, the zombie subgenre. Yeah. I actually have an interesting story about Serpent and the Rainbow. So I rented it from a, my local re- video rental store in probably like the mid to late 90s. And uh, it was after the good one shut down, which was uh, Sight and Sound Video. And then we had Video King, which there was two Video King locations that I was aware of. One in Chittenango and one with, or one in Fayetteville and one in Canastota. So obviously I was located in Canastota. So around this time, I want to say probably like 96, 97. It might even been 98. Maybe 97. I don't know. But I remember they raised their prices. And their prices literally doubled. And I remember being so spiteful. At the time, I had Serpent in the Rainbow rented out. Or I went and rented it out. And it was like double the cost. So I was like, what the fuck? I was like, and for some reason, the woman that worked there was really mean. She was really mean all the time. And she, at the, I think about it now, I was probably like 10, 11 years old. And she was probably like late teens, early 20s. But she was just like mean and ugly. And she <laughs> just, just, just a miserable 
human. A, mis- a miserable stink, as Stacy Keats would say. <laughs> so I remember going home and I peeled the logo off the VHS tape and, <laughs> and fucking put it on like a like a, one of the VHS tapes I had at home, but I can't even remember what movie it was. It might even been a blank movie. And I peeled the fucking sticker off the side and put it onto it and returned it and kept Serpent in the Rainbow. That's great. <laughs> That is an, that is awesome. That is hilarious. Yeah, I was really pissed. And I think about it now, it's like someone probably is so stoked to like see Serpent the Rainbow, went and rented it out like eight months after I got it, and they they got like I don't even know, like the dinosaur show or something. <laughs> They're like, What the fuck is this? <laughs> no, that's in that I know for, for all of us, that's um something that we revere so much is those experiences at video rental stores because that's where my love for the horror genre began growing up with my grandparents renting renting these movies at these mom and pop video stores particularly for me it was video to roll in the north utica shopping center where i grew up um that area and yeah just seeing those they you know now we you and i see so many dvd covers or they don't or blu-ray covers they don't even freaking use the original theatrical art no or the original they, they just put some lame ass fucking uh you, you know something that they just whipped up on the computer where it's like dude that was used to be pivotal the awesome images like on people under the stairs or you know the awesome cover art on friday the 13th or nightmare on elm street those were the reason we freaking even watched these movies really those because that's what we picked out based on how awesome the cover art was. yeah and they dropped the ball on that during the late like mid to late 2000s when they were finally putting some of these films out on dvd and you'd get these fucking terrible like not even photoshop i don't even know what it what it was it was one of the fucking it was some of the worst shit ever stuff that wouldn't even make sense with the film and stuff it would just be like a skull like 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 yeah absolutely (laughs) pathetic like you said zero effort being put into it they they didn't even care that it was a piece of shit they're just like eh whatever get it out yeah so (laughs) bump it out one of my one of my one of my favorite films of his and i feel like he got shit on at the time and i think it still gets a little shit on shocker i love shocker i think it's an amazing film and obviously there were several films like that were similar uh you know uh obviously the horror show which was you know uh, actually an entry in the house series was uh similar to that as well but shocker you know wes has said he's went on to say that like Horace Pinker in the the Shocker movie was supposed to be, you know, he was uh he was bitter that he was not getting certain royalties for the Freddy Krueger craze that Bob Shea was kind of cashing in on and you know at this point 89 they're what they're at part 5 and there's obviously probably as big as it's been the final the fourth entry in 88 was like their biggest one up to that point and West wasn't seeing dick from these movies more or less and he wanted to create his own new Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Uh, and that was the idea with Horace Pinker. Obviously, that didn't turn out that way. But, man. He wanted I- to, you know, create that. He wanted to create the next franchise. He was sick and fucking tired of looking at the box office numbers of all of New Lines. You know, Bob Shea's Elm Street films, which he felt, rightfully felt like, hey, that was my creation. That was my idea. And you fuckers are, you know, kind of ripping my idea. And so he said, well, I'll, I'll just freaking create my own. Yeah. Villain. 
And again, when we talk about cover art, I remember seeing the cover art and I remember seeing it and then obviously putting it together. I was just like, oh, shit. Like and obviously on everything that came out from West at that point or after Nightmare on Elm Street said, you know, from the director of Nightmare on Elm Street. And I was like, oh, shit, Wes Craven. And seeing that artwork with him on in the chair with the friggin with the the DOC friggin outfit on in the electric chair was uh, it was important artwork and it sold the movie for younger kids that were rolling into video stores you know running these movies out and beginning a craze on certain films and these cult followings based on the cover art yeah i couldn't agree more and 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 again you know to, to give credit where credit's due mitch pelecki was great in that role and he went on to have a pretty successful career you know x file he's still doing the whole x files thing and you'd have to imagine you know, that was one of his biggest roles to date. I, I honestly don't personally know him from anything else other than, you know, that. So you'd have to think that that role had a, it did play a part in him getting um, some of these future roles like on the X-Files where he's one of the major characters. So, yeah, you're right. That, that movie, um, sort of a murder mystery with you know, a supernatural twist, but futuristic too, with like virtual kind of like touching on like virtual reality and like, you know, obviously like traveling through electronical devices, like electronic devices, TVs and electrical outlets. And it was, uh, you know, it was like, and a great score too. Oh, amazing score, amazing soundtrack. A lot of great, you know, you got dangerous toys on there and it's, it definitely is, you know, because I think people were probably rolling in thinking it was going to be another Nightmare on Elm Street, and it wasn't because it's a different kind of film. But uh, I think now, though, it is getting its uh, it is getting its due, at least for people that are just discovering it or are rediscovering it. Um, so maybe it is getting its due now. But I always thought it was great, and I thought it was kind of like underappreciated. Yeah, and um, I agree. I think it's a great film. I love it. Um, have definitely watched it a lot more as I've gotten older. I'm not necessarily sure where um, I could definitely understand his thought process. And, you know, it's sort of like the, uh, the night of the living dead crew. It's like a way of sort of taking back what they feel is theirs. I understand what, uh, what Wes, Wes's idea was. It is a little hard for me to envision that film as a franchise necessarily, because uh, I, I don't know, I guess, I guess you could have Pinker go on and, and, kill people through continue to kill people through technology you know through like you said through the television and you know maybe eventually computers and stuff but um i think is i think it worked perfectly as a standalone film i'm kind of glad that it wasn't made into a franchise because i think it, it it serves its purpose in just the one entry oh yeah definitely um and you know moving on to one of the last films we're going to talk about before we dive into the nightmare films and then we'll dive into his other stuff, and of course the the Scream franchise. We'll we'll talk about that to you know kind of round out our conversation. But um, people under the stairs. This was a film I saw, and I, this is a film I didn't rent. Uh, I actually saw it on HBO. I'll never forget it. I remember seeing it air after. Um, so every every um every Saturday, and I think they still do it on HBO. They would have. A new, a new film come out like that was already released in theaters or whatever and it was typically a year or so after the release of the theatrical release of the film uh-huh. now for whatever reason I remember I remember this vividly I remember 
it had to have come out like a week or two prior on HBO, like they had debuted it on HBO, but I remember I was excited because I didn't go to the movies and see Adam's Family. Adam's Family was the new film that HBO was showing like that Saturday. It was debuting on HBO television. So I remember staying up as like probably like eight or nine o'clock and you know, you're talking like, you know, man, we're talking like I'm five years old or so, or four years old. Like this is one of my, it's one of my vivid memories. I, I literally remember this vividly. Um, and I could be remembering it wrong, but whatever, we're going to roll with it. Cause I'm just going to write the narrative here if I'm forgetting it. Um, <laughs> Uh, I remember watching Adam's Family and being like super stoked or whatever, but I remember because this movie came out like a few weeks ago on HBO, it came on right after Adam's Family. I'm like, people under the stairs. I was just like, when you're like a little kid, like people under the, the people under the stairs, like it sells you on the title sells it on you like right there. Oh, absolutely. And I remember staying up and watching it and, uh, and I remember, like, just being, like, frightened by it. And for some reason, I thought, like, you know, one of the guys with the long hair that was the one of the guys under the stairs, for some reason, I thought it was the guy from Wayne's World. One of the long-haired guys from Wayne's World, because Wayne's World, I had just seen at that point, too. And I remember thinking that all movies were, like, correlated somehow. So I was just like, oh, that's the guy from Wayne's World. He must have died after Wayne's World or whatever, and he's in this movie now. Like... Because you're just like nonsensically thinking things when you're a kid, and that I remember that's what I thought. I thought it was one of the guys from Wayne's World. No, I hear you. But I remember loving this film th- that far back. Um, and it was such a, it, and it's remained, it's 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 maintained its uh, its its luster over the years, and I love it just just as much now as I did when I first saw it, and it was kind of, Wes, Wes always did have his finger on the pulse of, like, you know, newer and, like, youthful things, and he's said that before, like, he doesn't talk, he never learned the lingo of, like, newer kids and stuff, but he said, you know, I think it's important to listen to kids, I remember him saying that, I think of how great that is, um, about how he always was like evolving and changing with the times and obviously touching on the inner city struggles of like black youth and stuff like this film was tapping into it like so this obviously says something uh culturally too uh about what was going on in the early 90s yeah i i think that he he definitely doesn't get acknowledged for some of the social statements he was making they're more overt i think in some of um you know, like Romero's work where, you know, if you're talking Dawn of the Dead, consumerism and things like that. Uh, but Craven, again, very intelligent guy, incorporated a lot of those um, those commentaries, a lot of undertones in his films. And uh, you're right, yeah, touched on um, just the, the impoverished inner city folks and, you know, what sometimes the drastic measures they'll, they'll go to to support themselves and their family. And, you know, you have the kid from Sandlot, um, his name escapes Brian Quentin Adams or what have you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, him, he, he was really great in that film. You got Ving Rhames. And to me, that's definitely one of my, to this day, uh, it will always be one of my top Craven films because like you, just having seen it early on, the anticipation, it's just, it really is a, is a beautifully made film. It's, it's genuinely frightening. I, I definitely put people under the stairs right there with, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and and uh, with Freddy Krueger, I think that it's just again, it's 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 a different type of fear. Those people seem 
just seemed then and still do very real to me. You know, ordinary people you see out on the street, you don't think anything of, but behind their doors, just like the sick, twisted stuff that's going on. And and it's just, man, is, it, there, to me, there's nothing more frightening than that. Like the people that look normal, but they're hiding this d- terrible secret, you know? Yeah, and you know, the, the acting in it is so good. You got R- Wendy Roby and Everett McGill who were both... You know, obviously in Twin Peaks, right around the same time. So, uh, they were really hot at the time as far as, like, people that were acknowledging their work. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, uh, Sean Whalen's, like, great in there as Roach. Like, he's, I don't think he could have cast that role better. That's the only good thing he ever did. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) In all honesty. Um... Yeah, Bridget's favorite there. Waylon oh, was great. Um, again, it's just it's just a, such a testament. I don't know, in all honesty, what his. I'm sure you know Craven had final say on who was cast, but all his films, there's never, there's very few examples I can think of where it's like, wow, that was a pretty poor choice. Every time you watch a Craven, you're like, man, that person, I can't imagine it with anybody else. And and what a testament, you know? What I mean, to have. Uh, to have people you couldn't imagine anyone else playing that role. That film is so freaking scary uh, to me. I just, I love it to this day. And the fact that, it, what, one of my favorite parts is the fact that he gets out and you're like, oh man, thank God he escaped. And then he goes back in. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> it's just awesome, man. Such a great film. And that is like a classic tale too, you know, like a classic Robin Hood type where you're stealing from the rich to give to the poor type thing you know exactly and uh yeah no to me that's just one of one of the best one one of his absolute best i absolutely adore that film so we'll 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 dive right in right now to you know obviously the 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 you know quintessential monster the quintessential horror story of freddy krueger and the nightmare on elm street you know we're gonna trek back to 1984 here and obviously wes was shopping this around and i I, one of the most disturbing parts of the whole idea of the the beginnings of nightmare on elm street is that it stems from an article that wes wrote about a kid that was having these nightmares saying like he was afraid he was going to die in his dreams uh, and I believe Wes said that it was uh, an article about, uh, you know, uh, an Oriental uh, child who was, you know, probably pre-teens or teens um, saying, you know, I'm someone's trying to kill me in my sleep. And the parents finally, like, you know, discover that, you know, the kid's hiding, like, sleeping pills or whatever they were trying to give him, medicine to get him. And he had, like, uh, a coffee, ma- he actually had a coffee maker, like, rigged in his room through, like, a... yeah. Yeah. Like to to think that that actually happened because this kid was so this kid that Wes never knew or not no one you know that was involved with the idea knew, um you know and finally the parents like must have slipped one Mickey their own kid to falling asleep and then um you know the kid starts screaming and shaking and they open the door and he falls like dead still and it dies in his sleep. Yeah, if that's not you know if that's not alarming if that's not freaky i don't i don't know what is that's uh, the fact that that was a legitimate story that that was a real person you know that craven had read about um that that's that's pretty creepy you yeah, know that that whole that whole thing it's it, it's really where you know they talk about you know art imitating life and 
wow, isn't that it's pretty awful what happened to this kid. So when you discovered Nightmare on Elm Street, what were your initial thoughts when you first, because obviously it's the first film, your first introduction to Wes as well, so what were your first thoughts upon you know finding this movie and the character of Freddy Krueger? Yeah, I thought he was, uh, I, I thought he was the scariest villain, the scariest creature I had ever seen. And again, the things that always scared me, and to this day, really still do, are the things that, you know, things that are, are very real and sort of hit home. And I think, whereas I didn't, I didn't fear Jason Voorhees necessarily, because it's like, hey, listen, I'm, uh, I'm never going to Camp Crystal Lake to piss him off, you know what I mean? But when it comes to Nightmare on Elm Street, the thought, yeah, granted, it, you know, the it took place, his killings took place largely on Elm Street, but the thought of, well, he gets you while you're sleeping. And there's, there is no escape because we all have to sleep at some point, you know, even Nancy recognizing and even her friends recognizing, Hey, someone's terrorizing me in my dreams. They still couldn't help but fall asleep because it's just, (laughs) we just have to sleep as human beings. So I think that was what was most frightening to me beyond his look, which is absolutely terrifying. And, you know, his mannerisms, how beautifully played he was by Robert Englund. It's just a thought of, well, everybody has to sleep. So it's, is he going to come for you? And I mean, once, once you close your eyes, is he going to, is he going to invade your sleep? Yeah. I mean, it's such a, and you know, now it's, it was something that was obviously never tapped into before. Like, you know, someone that a monster that kills you in your sleep. So is it fake? Like, or, you know, is it like, is it, you know, cause on the surface you think like, oh, well, you know, oh, it's all make-believe, you can only kill you in your dreams. But when you actually die in your dreams, like, you've tapped into the ultimate horror, the ultimate terror, the ultimate, like, you can't escape. Yeah, and that, that is just what is so, um, so frightening about that ca- character because it, he's just so invasive. You know what I mean? He, every time you close your eyes, he's in your bedroom, you know, he's in your bathtub, he's, um, it's just really, uh, just changed the genre forever, you know, that type of villain, it was coming off the heels of the golden age of the slasher genre, the the late 70s and early 80s, and most of those films, you know, they, they were reminiscent of a Michael Myers, you know what I mean, who's, who's scary in his own way, but to go from something that had a human form, a Jason Voorhees, a Michael Myers, and, you know, there's even a leather face. It, it was a human, you know what I mean? It may be sort of a, a supernatural human, but it was a human. And then to go to something where it's like, well, well, well Robert Englund, you know, Freddy Krueger, he's dead. The parents of Elm Street, they murdered him. He, you know, burned death. He's gone. He has no physical form anymore, but now he's at his most powerful because he's attacking you when you're most vulnerable, when you're most susceptible while you're sleeping. Um, to me, it's just to this day, that changed the genre more than anything. It really, like I said, all these all these classic slasher films, Curtains, Prom Night, everything, Terror Train, the millions of slasher films that had come out before 1984 had really set a certain tone. It's like a mass killer, and he's invading your home um, while you're sleeping in a different way, but he's, he's, he's a man or he's a woman. And now, yeah, someone's invading your home. But, you know, no no guns are going to protect you. No, um, you know, alarm systems are going to protect you because it, it's it's in your dreams. And truly the most heinous of 
crime committers too, a child killer, uh, you know, and they never really outwardly come out and say it, but, you know, a child molester. So, literally, one of the most heinous human beings ever is now, you know, seeking revenge on the children of Elm Street in your dreams. You're mo- the most the most invasive you can possibly be, you know, when you're sleeping. Absolutely, and that to to me, there, there's definitely an interesting dynamic to horror films, and I don't know what it says about us as horror fans, but it's funny because. As time goes on in these series, we tend to... Who are people fans of? Certainly people are fans of Nancy. You know, they like Nancy. But I'll tell you right now, you and I can both attest to the fact we've been to these conventions and whatnot. Heather Langenkamp doesn't have the five-mile-long line. Robert Englund has the five-mile-long line. Exactly. It's like people, for some reason, I don't know what it is, but people are drawn towards the villains more than the good guys, more than the heroines. You know, people, I don't know if people are associating more, but isn't it interesting that you have, and I know it's just a movie, but it, it, to me, I've always thought, okay, you have Robert Englund, and like you said, he's not just a child murderer, he really is a pedophile too, which, you know, they kind of, like you said, they they skip around it, um, but that's what he is, and yet, fans sort of idolize the guy, and, you know, it's like, oh, we're going to be at Robert Englund for Halloween, and, um, you know, wait, I'm uh, five mile long line to meet him and everything it's he, he sort of transcended that entire franchise he became that franchise and it, it is interesting how uh people tend to associate more with him than they do the, the good guys they cheer for him more i always i always thought that that was interesting too that these you know freddie jason michael myers leatherface all these guys had more fans than the villain or the than the heroes or the you know the protagonist um and i i always thought about it and i think i i understand it to a a degree and i think people side with the villains because it takes the scariness away if you're rooting for the villain if you're on the side of freddy krueger you know you're it takes away the the terror you're not because you're not amongst the hunted in your mind. You're 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 siding with the guy who is the hunter. You're siding with, you know, you know, and, evil, and, and it you know takes what? that I've, away. I've honestly never, I've never thought of it like that. But yeah, I think that has a lot of legitimacy to it. You know, it's yeah, you're right. It's just it becomes less scary <laughs> when you're rooting for the person who uh, inevitably wins. Yeah, so you know it's I mean? a defense mechanism. It's like, yeah, if you're going to, if you can't beat them, might as well join them. And so people, you know, know no matter how much they like one of, uh, one of the characters, they all end up dead. And that's pretty much universal across the majority of the genres. You know, we all, uh, it's like, oh, wow, we really like, um, you know, Kristen. Well, then her character gets killed in, you know, the Elm Street films or, you know, whoever it may be. We really like Nancy. Well, she's dead too. So... Yeah, it's almost, uh, well, you might as well root for the ones that are going to survive. Yeah. yeah that's, I think you're right. And, you know, to think about how well, obviously this is Johnny Depp's, like, breakout role as well. Um, and you think about all the people that this film kind of helped. I mean, granted, Heather Langenkamp really isn't known for anything other than her role as Nancy Thompson. 
But it had so many... It was such perfect casting, too, with John Saxon. So you're bringing in some veteran acting chops in there with that. And then you have... Uh, you know, Wes just, he just had his, it was all the alignment of everything, you know, New Line, a company that had been a distributing comp, a distribution company up until that point, uh, more or less, uh, having just a, you know, what, alone in the dark and like, uh, uh, not a very wide, uh, you know, film based so far, and they credit him, you know, still to this day. You know, Nightmare on Elm Street or, or New Line Cinema is the house that Freddie built. It, exactly. Um, it's, it really jump started um, New Line, which, like you said, was just a little fledgling studio uh, that, that really didn't have many hits at that point. Um, you know, like you said, they had. You know, alone in the dark, a few other things. But then you imagine what New Line went on and accomplished. You know, you're, you're talking uh, um, Lord of the Rings for crying out loud. You know, one of the biggest film franchises, one of the biggest trilogies, money makers of all time. Peter Jackson becomes an overnight star, although obviously he had done a lot previously. But you know, New Line Cinema is responsible for that. New Line Cinema, granted, I don't know, you know, how it fared in the box office, but now certainly revered as. You know, I know you and I absolutely love the Turtle films, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But yeah. That's New Line Cinema. Absolutely. So they, uh, like you said, they they got their start with Elm Street. Um, Bob Shea really credits uh, Craven and and his contribution to their company, really creating creating New Line Cinema. And to this day, you see New Line. I grant, you know, it's it's changed changed hands and you know what have you, but people to. To this day, these they're making big time movies, you know. So, um, and that all began with Elm Street. Yeah, and you know, Wes obviously, the, initially Wes was going to be heavily involved with Dream Warriors. Obviously, the return of Nancy and her father um, to the after the second one. Uh, so, and you know, it obviously ended up not panning out, and Wes really didn't have. Uh, much to do with it. He wrote a treatment for it, right? I think they credit Correct. him as having some of the ideas, but like you said, nothing compared to what originally was planned. Right. So Wes, uh, and, and you know, from that point on, I think Wes was just over it. And when it became the phenomenon that it did throughout the '80s, I think Wes, maybe he wasn't bitter. I think he was more so bitter that he felt uncredited in the creation of it all. But. And I think another, uh, you know, again, I'm just, I'm just hypothesizing, but I think there's a lot of, there's misconceptions in, in the film industry that, oh, tricking Nightmare on Elm Street, that's, that movie's huge, that guy must be a millionaire. Well, clearly Wes went on to have a very successful, lucrative career, but I think for a lot of these people, they're not, they don't get rich. They have to continue to make tons of films. You know, I'm telling you right now, you look at George Romero and how successful he was and, and how, how, how much of a defining career he had. Well, I'm telling you right now, if George Romero was really that wealthy, he's not going to conventions signing autographs for hours and hours and hours. Right. You know, it, it just, it's just common sense. So I think the misconception is, is that people, um, people think that these, these directors are, incredibly wealthy people 
and, and they're just they're not particularly early on in their careers they don't have the leverage to say hey listen i'm not signing over any of these rights this is my story i wrote it i directed it you know you're sort of at the mercy of the studios in order to get your films made so i think there's you know a level of resentment when you see new line blow up into this huge studio making tons of money on the back of your creation when you're sort of struggling you know and it gives you it tells you after a nightmare on elm street i believe it was after right that he he comes out with the freaking hills have eyes too and he said it's just because man i needed money i didn't have i ran out of money (laughs) so it just gives you an idea that he's not he's not freaking rolling in dough so I think uh, he had every right, just like the the original Night of the Living Dead people being pissed off that, well, somebody's benefiting off, off our hard work, but it's not us. Yeah. And, you know, obviously after the, what was tentatively and, and at the time was going to be the last entry in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, you know, you have Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. Uh, you know, subsequently after that, Wes and Bob, Bob Shea contacts Wes because there was such a clamor still it, you know, tell Rachel Talalay's entry, the final Friday, Freddy's Dead, left a bad taste in people's mouth as far as, like, what they wanted to see for the last of Freddy. And, you know, Bob Shea contacts Wes. He makes things right with Wes, money-wise, and, uh, you know, rights-wise. Uh, and more or less, uh, from, from what I've seen in interviews from both of them, Bob cuts him a check makes things right, and then we have, which I think is probably his best work in all of his, out of all of his films, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. And yeah, then, New Nightmare was definitely ahead of its time. There's no question that the guy created something that was just too good for 1994, if that makes sense. It was just something that the public... They weren't ready for. Um, they they just they that was before, you know, this satirical, self-aware um, genre of horror, which basically Craven recreated a couple years later with Scream. Anyway, uh, people people weren't didn't know how to, to to handle it, and you had this sort of hybrid of yeah, it's a horror film and it's scary, but it's it's totally different than anything that had been done previously. And it's funny because both you and I and so many others now, we have this, we revere this film, we have such great appreciation for it, but imagine how disappointing it must have been for Wes when, when he finally comes back to the Elm Street franchise and really sort of gets dismissed, gets sort of, you know, people are like, ugh, this sucks, you know, because it wasn't, it wasn't this bloodbath that they'd come to expect, you know, with these, all these kills in, the, in a Nightmare on Elm Street film. It just had a completely different feel to it. Yeah, and it was... It really was such... And it's still to this day, I think it's ahead of its time, even in 2017. I mean, it's so smart, and it's such an interesting way to take the Freddy Krueger character, especially because it's something, you know, that is spawned from an idea of something that actually happened, where someone was being felt that they were being attacked in their dreams, and they died in their sleep, in their dreams. So the fact that now it, you know, the idea of it is transcended and, you know, it's all like, uh, you know, art imitating reality to the, in reality, like, you know what I mean? It's, it's completely, 
it's yeah. it's such a unique concept and unique idea. I thought it was executed phenomenally. I thought Heather Langenkamp playing Heather Langenkamp, like Wes Craven playing Wes Craven, Bob Shea playing Bob Shea, Robert England playing Robert England. It's such a f- and like those scenes where where it is it you're 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 cutting into the lure and the reality and what's real and what's not when you have Robert England painting you know do, doing this like therapy and like you know painting and he's painting the real Freddy you know you know this new Freddy the you know the non movie Freddy that they really you know are all fearing in the movie. Yeah, it's it is. It's so smart. Um, it, it really is just a very sophisticated horror film. Miko Hughes, obviously, who had previously done one of your favorite films, Pet Cemetery, known for you know being one of Michelle Tanner's best friends in Full House. He was freaking amazing in that film. Oh yeah, for um, his age, that was amazing. Uh, that was amazing work for someone his age. He, yeah, he really, um, he really is such an underrated little you know obviously he does, i don't think he does a whole lot now but for then being the age that he was such an underrated little actor uh but yeah everything about that film was so far ahead of its time um, i think now it's definitely one of those films that is has gained so much appreciation from people um but at the time definitely not you know something that you know, people I just don't think thought that highly of at the time. Yeah, which is a shame, but I think now people, the more people I talk to about it, they're like, oh, New Nightmare is, is such a such a classic, and it's so, it's so fucking good. So I like that it, do, it does get its respect from people that really understand and, and are, you know, fans of what Wes did there. Absolutely, yeah. It's great that the, that film has finally... Um finally got got the respect that it deserves um because like you said a lot of a lot of times you know we've talked about it a lot of times it takes people dying before anybody even recognizes their worth like edgar Allan poe and things so i'm glad craven was at least alive for people to start you know bringing that and at conventions to have him sign or sending it to him in the mail or you know writing him letters about that film because um like i said it was shit on initially but I'm glad it finally garnered the respect that it deserved. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we could talk, uh, and I, one day we will cover all the Nightmare on Elm Streets, but, you know, we could talk for hours on just the, the two, you know, Nightmare films that Wes was, you know, the, the full creator on. Um, because, you know, it is so pivotal to his, his career, his filmography and everything. But we'll... Uh, We'll jump, we'll jump around, and then we'll cover the Scream series, and and we'll wrap it up. But we obviously still got a little bit more to talk to talk about. So, your thoughts on Vampire in Brooklyn, nineteen ninety five? So that that was actually one that you recommended to me. Um, for whatever reason, there was sort of a little gap in time in, in Wes's career that I I had missed out on a few entries, and that was uh, that was definitely one of them. I had never seen it. You recommended it to me. And, uh, I'm, I'm honestly not so much now, you know, with all due respect to Eddie Murphy, I don't really follow his career now, but at one point, I don't think most people would disagree that he was one of the greatest comedians going, you know, oh, I'm by a far. huge fan of what's that? Oh, by far, especially, you know, spawning into the, uh, with those Landis films in particular, uh, trading, trading, uh, tr- 
the tra- trading spaces, right? Or places. Trading places. Um, trading places I love. Coming to America, I love. You're talking ju- just a great comedian. So that that film, even though it was made in the 90s, still had the feel of old school Eddie Murphy to me. And uh, I-, I thought it was great. And I thought it showed Craven's depth. Um, you know, he was doing something that we had seen with Carpenter, you know, creating comedies as well as, you know, horror films, action films. So I just was hugely impressed by that film when I first saw it. I was like, what? This movie's hilarious. Yeah, it really, uh, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of great, uh, comedic, uh, actors in there too. Uh, when you talk about, uh, like John Witherspoon, like just hilarious in this film, like, uh, who plays the guy. It was one of the funniest, uh, funniest parts of the movie. <laughs> when the the ship that Eddie Murphy is like has ridden into the harbor on, and the fucking the John Witherspoon's character like gets on the ship and he goes, "Ahoy, motherfucker!" <laughs> <laughs> I just die laughing, and that guy's got such a great role in this. Yeah, that, that's definitely a film that if, if you haven't had a chance to see, if you're a fan of Eddie Murphy. You're a fan of Wes Craven. You definitely have to see it. You have to own it. It's it's readily available. It's not one of the. It's definitely not one of the lesser seen entries. Um, and you, you definitely have to check it out because Craven, certainly known for certain things, not really known for for his his comedic abilities. But man, that film is hilarious. Well, uh, you know, it's funny as Wes wanted it to. To be a comedy, and Eddie Murphy wanted it to be serious, but I know Wes had some gripes with it just because Eddie Murphy had his all of his guys, all of his entourage around trying to push their ideas in the film and get certain like friends or whatever in the film. So there was like a push and pull between Wes and the the Murphy entourage that I understand. Uh, but all in all, I think That's it, probably why <laughs> that could very well be why Eddie Murphy's career is nowhere where it used to be, which is because people, you know, nobody wants to deal with that shit. No. You know, no, no direct, freaking directing is, it certainly seems grueling enough as is. Who the hell wants to deal with somebody's annoying entourage uh, trying to hijack your film? It's like, uh, no, I don't know who you are. Take a step back. I got this, you know? Yeah. So, uh, jumping, uh, ahead to the last four, uh, you know, non-scream related uh, movies he did. Uh, you know, we're gonna talk about. Did you see Music of the Heart? Honestly, I haven't, and I believe that's the only Craven movie I've never seen. That's that musical with Meryl Streep, right? Yeah, I haven't seen it either. And Meryl Streep is a, a pos, so I don't care about her. Yeah, I'm I'm hundred percent on board with that. I have I really have zero interest. In saying that, I think it's some, someday, you know, I may. But the problem is, is you, you know, you and I barely have time to watch the films we love, let alone watch some fucking musical that we don't even have an interest in. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'll jump ahead before we talk about Curse, just because I know we can talk a little bit about Curse. But what would you think of Red Eye? I thought that was another film that it didn't really have, like I said, Wes doesn't, doesn't really have like a pinpointed like staple of what his films read as but i thought red eye was a fun film it was a different film and obviously coming out when it did in the mid 2000s i thought it was uh i thought it was pretty fun 
Yeah, uh, it, agreed. It's it's sort of like an action film where a thriller. You know, suspense, a th- exactly like a thriller. You could imagine that's the sort of movie like a, an Alfred Hitchcock would make because you have somebody who all she wants to do is scream out, you know, hey, you know, someone's someone's holding me hostage here, but can't because of the implications. Hey, I'm you know I'm going to kill your family or whatnot. So she's she's being held hostage. To me, that's that's pretty terrifying. Being held hostage by a madman, and 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 Killian Murphy, Cillian Murphy, however you pronounce his name, is one of, in my opinion, one of the most underrated actors of our time. I know yeah, now he's, he's great. He's known for that. Um, you know, I forget what the name of that series is. He's on now. That's really popular. Um, but you know, some some movies he's done that I absolutely love. Sunshine, which was a Danny Boyle movie. 28 Days Later, which was, you know, another Danny Boyle movie. The guy is the freaking man, not to mention, you know, Scarecrow and, and, and the Batman yeah. reboot. There. And he, it, was, it, was a, it was a chance for Wes to work with newer actors that were really great, like him and, like, uh, Rachel Rachel McAdams. Like, it was cool to see him be to be able to work with these newer actors that, you know, he hadn't worked with. Um and uh, I thought they both had put on brilliant perform uh, two brilliant performances in that movie. I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. I, I think I think the only thing that hurts films like this, and I don't know if you share this sentiment, but the only thing I'll say is that a lot of times when when a film, you know, people talk about a film, it's because it has a lot of replay value, and they've seen it a thousand times. The only thing I'll say for for Red Eye that hurts it is that after you've seen it the first time, it's not like you're trying to watch it again like 20 other times you know what i mean it's sort oh, i've of, honestly seen it you, i've honestly seen it once yeah and i think that that's probably true of most people because it, it's it's hard with with films like that which are dependent upon the suspense and the big reveal and you know how's it going to turn out because after you've seen it you're sort of like well i know exactly how it's gonna you know play out if there's not like a desire to freaking watch it 10 other times so yeah i think that definitely hurts that film to a degree but you're right yeah definitely another fun one uh you know another film that came out the same year that there was it was completely reshot it was tore apart by the studio there was fucking 900 problems with it and i feel i feel so bad about it just because i would have loved to have seen how it was originally going to be as cursed which the film that it is now isn't bad i think it's good especially considering everything that Wes went through on that one where, you know, Rick Baker was originally going to do the effects. He had done all the, like, mock-ups and prototypes and had everything good to go. And then he pulled out of it because it was a shit fest. Yeah, that's... They didn't want to put any money into it. And they were limiting Wes. They were limiting the makeup department. And I know I had showed you the the original werewolf design that Rick Baker had done. And it was just uh, astonishing. And it's a shame that it wasn't ever put in the film. Yeah, I don't know who's directly responsible for trashing that film other than the Weinsteins, which I think, you know, I think they certainly had a role. It was under their banner dimension, I think. Yep. Um, but, yeah, it's it's pretty disappointing because being written by Kevin Williamson, who obviously, you know, did the Scream franchise and is basically, you know, a very, very smart writer. To, to have him writing it, you have Craven directing and originally had, you know, Skeet Ulrich attached and whoever else. When you watch it now, it's 
you're right. It's still a good movie, but you can't help but think, well, what could, you know, of the potential of what could have been had Craven been given the creative license that he really deserved, you know? Exactly. Um, and like you said, Rick Baker, who, who the hell... Who the hell freaking messes with Rick Baker's work? Yeah, seriously. What are you, an idiot? It's like, dude, you don't create a freaking film full of CGI when you have Rick Baker on board who's creating you a werewolf. Yeah. And other practical effects. Yeah, and it's, uh, I know they kept his name on it and he's completely distanced himself from it. And, you know... Uh, to think about what it could have been with, you know, you Corey Feldman in the, I believe was the Scott Bayo role, and then yeah, you yeah, had Skeet yeah. Ulrich as the Joshua Jackson role. I think it would have been a much better film. Uh, but for what we got, uh, you know, a mid two thousands werewolf movie, I thought it was it was very entertaining and great, even with all of its flaws. Absolutely, and and you know, as good as some of the other people could have been. You have to give credit where credit's due. Christina Ricci's a great actress. Phenomenal in the movie. And and Jesse Eisenberg, he's a little nerd, but um, <clears throat> you and I both love him in Squid and the Whale, Social Network. So certainly it's not like they replaced him with a bunch of chumps. No, you not know, at all. Certainly good actors in there. So, uh, yeah, like we we could do a whole podcast on Curse too, but uh, one of the films I think doesn't get a, enough love. It was the second to last film that initially when I saw it, I thought it was okay, but after rewatching it, and I've rewatched it probably six or seven times since then, is my soul to take. I think it's a it was an awesome film to come out when it did in two thousand ten, uh, and the fact that Wes was you know kind of uh, you know obviously in his sixties at that point. Um, to think that he put something out that was another original idea, you know, all these kids have the same birthday and, you know, there was a mass murderer, uh, that was on the loose the night all these kids were born. Like, you know what I mean? It's such a unique idea. Yeah, I honestly, I'll be the first one to admit, um, that when I first saw it, I saw it in theaters I thought it was a piece of shit, to be totally honest. And I think a big part of that was because Craven did not shoot that film in 3D, from my understanding. But what they did in post-production is they went in and they made it 3D. So when I watched it in theaters, it was herky and jerky, and I found it very distracting. It was like, it wasn't one of those 3D experiences that was really immersive. To me, it was just a distraction. It just, it was very annoying. And then come to find out later, oh, well, that's why, because this wasn't intended to be seen in 3D. So I hated it when I watched it in theaters. I had no intention of ever watching it again. But then rediscovered it on home video, you know, DVD or whatnot at the po- at that time or Blu-ray and just fell in love with it. And I, I, I think it is incredibly well done. I think uh, it's... It is scary. I think it's funny. I love Max Thoreau's uh, bug character, and obviously he went on and you know it was did Bates Motel, Bates Motel, and um, but I think that's a really, really good underrated film. And so you know, I urge anybody who saw it initially and th- thought like I did that it was kind of shitty to you know give it another chance because it it really is great. Yeah, and. Uh... Yeah, it's a lot of fun, and uh, 
it's definitely uh, definitely underappreciated. So hopefully in time it'll become more appreciated. But to uh, to wrap up our West's discussion, uh, I'd like to just. Uh, End with the the Scream series, you know. We're talking '96 when the first one came out. What a what a, a juggernaut Scream became. Obviously, one one of the most recognizable uh, characters in Ghostface. That that Ghostface mask still sells everywhere. You see it every in every store. Every last week in September when they put the Halloween stuff out. And it really reinvigorated, and I know a lot of people have always said this, it really reinvigorated the the horror genre. And to think that you can come and you can come and do all these movies in between, you know, ninety-six and, you know, seventy-two when he did uh Last House on the Left, you think Last House on the Left, Hills Have Eyes, uh Shocker and and People Under the Stairs, and then you can come back and you can create another franchise that is completely with the times. It's it's so ingrained in the nineties like uh teen culture and for it to come and be as as potent as it is and still rem- and still hold up to this day is almost two uh, a two hour film in the original and then spawning uh several sequels that are all uh pretty decent and in, in, in their own right and some of them are even more than decent but the original scream is such an, an amazing concept and an amazing film and such a and kevin williamson's writing such an homage and a love letter to fa- to fans of the genre yeah i agree 100 percent. that is a film that uh, again redefined the genre after new nightmare you've got this young hot horror writer you know he's young you know, hot he, cast too think about all the young hot cast in this movie Oh, absolutely. It's sort of, you know, you'd have to imagine it. It really launched the careers of pretty much every single person in there. Even people we don't necessarily attribute to Scream, um, like Liv Schreiber. You know, it's, yeah, yeah we all think of uh, Skeet Ulrich and we think of Matthew Lillard and Jamie Kennedy and... Um, Rose McGowan. Rose McGowan and Nev Campbell. You know, you think of all those people... But, you know, Liv Schreiber is arguably the biggest A-list actor in the whole bunch. He uh, he really benefited from the first two, you know, Scream franchises. Or, the fr- or excuse me, the first two Scream films. Obviously so, going on to do Ray Donovan, which is a huge success for Showtime. Absolutely. it's That film, again, was so new and so fresh and really... Um, really just took the genre in a different direction. It was still very scary. Ghostface was horrifying. Peter, um, not Peter, uh, you know, the, the gentleman Jackson's his last Roger name. Roger Jackson. Roger Jackson, who voiced Ghostface. Talk about the absolute, I can't imagine any other voice ever being, you know, being Ghostface. It's freaking terrifying. Everything just came together perfectly having that you know finding that mask while craven was out scouting you know having that young cast just having kevin williamson this really smart satirical self-aware writing this script uh, you know and then he goes on and does freaking dawson's creek he was very much on the pulse of young people in the 90s and it was very believable it seemed very authentic and again so you've got this this film that is funny you know you've got the the comedic element with jamie kennedy 
um, and Dewey, you know, you, you look at what that did for David Arquette's career and, and, you know, Courtney Cox obviously was huge anyway, screen or excuse me with, um, friends, but you know, you have the comedic side, but then you have the very serious side, um, ghost phase butchering people. And, and, and it's just, it's just an awesome, freaking awesome, awesome story. And, you know, it's one of those classic mysteries, too. Who's the killer? Very Clue-esque. It, absolutely. And that's and, and that's where it sort of, as, as new as it was, it harkened back to the good old days, the golden age of horror, where it was the whodunits. You know, yeah, it was that, very Hitchcockian in that sense. Yeah, it was, it was a big episode of freaking Scooby-Doo in a lot of ways, where it's like a fault revealed, oh, it's not him, you know, it's it's him, and, you know, Skeet Ulrich's getting stabbed, oh, I thought it was the boyfriend, it's not him, oh, shit, it is him, you know, it's, that, that's become a beloved part of the entire Scream series, is just who the hell did it, you know what I mean? Who's yeah. responsible? And I remember, I remember in the fall of '97 getting the VHS, having uh, my mother go and pick it up at like Eckerd's or wherever the fuck it was, um, pick it up and bring it home. And like, I was like, "Oh fuck!" I was like, "This looks good." And watching that first scene with Drew Barrymore and her get that sets the tone for the whole, you know, the, not even just the whole movie, but the whole franchise. It, it really just encapsulated everything. Obviously, paying tribute to. Halloween and you know talking about John Carpenter you know you know you talk about Halloween and Friday the 13th and you know uh you know all the the classic ones that you know the Williamson wanted to pay tribute to all those great directors so it was just such a it was geared right up our alley especially at such a young age being horror fans yeah it's it's a brilliant film i think to be able to say if you're Wes Craven that you created, you were directly responsible. Um, you know, and I know Kevin Williamson obviously wrote Scream, but yeah, to, to say that, hey, I directed, I, I, I was the originator of two of the most timeless horror franchises of all time. I think in another 50 years, Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream will both continue to be talked about and, and possibly way beyond that point. And to say, you know, to be Wes Craven and say, hey, I'm responsible for both. Um, I don't think, I don't think there's, there's much of an argument there. It's like, wow, that talk about one of the greatest of all time. Yeah. And then when you get, obviously Scream 2, uh, I love Scream 2. I think it's great. And I remember when that one came out, I was just like, I, I kind of like, was like, oh shit, we're going to get like new Scream movies all the time now. And which, you know, uh, a couple years later we did get Scream 3. Um, Scream 3, I think being the weakest of the three, even though they were a little more like they tried to be a little more self-aware on Scream 3. Um, what are your thoughts on Scream 2 and 3 though? Uh, Scream 2 is great. I, I like Billy's mother. <laughs> Didn't see it coming, did you? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think that one's great. And I think um, people thought, oh, well, they did the dual killer in the first one. They're not going to do it again. And bam, they did it again. You know, um, I thought that Jerry O'Connell's character really added a lot to to that that second installment i think her her best you know uh nev campbell's best friend there was great i think it has one of the best scariest scenes in the entire franchise where the cops are leading them away and 
they end up, you know, getting uh, into that car wreck and the, the cop gets impaled and, you know, they have to sort of crawl over uh, ghost ace to get out of the vehicle, the yeah. cop car, you know, the active car. It's like, that was so suspenseful. That was genuinely uh, such a scary scene. I love the second one. The whole campus atmosphere really harkened back to the old slashers of the 80s, you know, the freaking Slaughter High, Splatter University. I love that, um, you know, final exam. I love that sort of uh, campus setting. I thought that one was great. I think the reveal was great. The third one, you know, I'm really not a fan of. I think it really hurt the continuity of the franchise. Kevin Williamson wasn't really a part of the third one. Um, it's hard. I don't think it has anything to do with Wes's direction, but it just, it got way too hokey for me. That fucking bodyguard calling, you know, David Arcot do drop, you know, that really killed it for me. I was like, yeah. is this, you know, this is, this is stupid. Um, that really, to me, that sucked. But you know what? I'm so glad for Wes and his, not like it would have hurt his legacy at all, but I'm so grateful that he was able to redeem that franchise, come back with the fourth one, which to is, me is, is, was phenomenal. Yeah. Now, how would you rank them? Because I rank them one, four, two, three. That's exactly how I rank them. Yeah. And the fourth yep. one, I remember going to see this in theaters and being so fucking amped up. And it delivered. It delivered um, such a great, a new, a new, again, uh, Williamson and Craven, a uh, dynamic duo coming together with a great young cast, an amazing concept, uh, fully ingrained in the social media uh, like life of what's going on in 2011 at the time. Um, and it really just killed it. It was just so fucking good. It's so fun. Kept you on the edge of your seat. You were still, you know, it was a classic mystery story. Again, you were still guessing. You didn't know who the killers were what their motives were, who was involved, who wasn't, like, you know, is Lee Shriver finally, like, is he finally blew a gasket, is he involved with it, like, you know, is is it Sydney? did she fucking finally lose her last marble, is she going nuts, and uh, it was just, uh, self. it was self-aware, it was super smart, as Williamson and, and Craven always have been with everything that they've done together and separate. Yeah, that that was, I think, a very, you know, pe- some people have mixed thoughts. I, I think it's great. Um, I think it's probably one of the best fourth entries in any horror franchise. I think it's, it's, it's incredibly fresh for being the fourth installment, and I think it was a very fitting way. Obviously, we both wish that Craven had gone on to, to, to do even more, that his career would have lasted even longer, but considering his, his health issues, I think it was a very fitting way to end his career. It was a blockbuster. It, you know, it was critically received you know, by, by us fans. It, it did phenomenally monetarily, and uh, I just think it was a good, a good way for Wes. If that was going to be the last film Wes makes, uh, made, I was grateful that, you know, it wasn't the ward or, you know, it wasn't freaking gin, you know, like with Hooper or whatever. I'm glad that it was something. I was like, wow, this is a great film. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. Uh, it was perfect. Like you said, it was a perfect way to end it. But uh, I do want to, uh, what are your thoughts, you know, now that we're kind of coming coming to a close uh, on on just talking about Wes and Wes's career and the impact he's he's made on us. What were your thoughts when you heard that Wes passed away? Yeah, I remember that being um, being very devastating. 
I remember it, it really affected our entire group. And I think a big reason for that is for us, it was so unexpected. Um, yeah, Wes, you know, he, he was an older dude. Um, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a spring chicken, but at the same time, we, you know, we'd see him occasionally until these most recent scream commentaries where he did look really rough. I didn't even discover those until, you know, after the fact, the people under the stairs or whatnot, the interviews he gave where it's like, shit, he's not looking good. But I just remember coming as a huge surprise. I had no idea that Wes, um, Wes had been sick. Um, and, and again, that's sort of a testament to who he was as a human being, that he wasn't, he wasn't, he didn't want a pity party. He didn't want people feeling sorry for him. He didn't even tell people he had brain cancer. It just sort of just faded away and it was just tragic. Um, and I think we all were surprised too, because we would see, you know, George out and about and we'd see, um, you know, carp out and about and those guys are freaking sucking down a pack full of cigarettes a minute. And somehow they outlived Craven. It was like, what the hell? You know, I just don't think it, it was very unexpected. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when I heard about Toby over the summer, I remember being like, oh, shit, Jesus. And George had just passed. And, and George, the George one was particularly rough just because we had all met him on several occasions. And he'd always just seemed so, like, nice and gracious to all of his fans. And he was just kind of like a, a mainstay at the convention circuit um, as well and stuff. So, uh I mean, the George one was really hard, especially just because, you know, you, you grow up with these guys and their art and everything. And, and, and just getting a chance to just shake a hand and say thank you, uh, it particularly hurts a little more when these guys pass on. But, you know, Wes, you, you know, there was always hope that Wes would roll through town doing something, promoting a movie, because I, I know he only really did the convention circuit or any kind of convention or meeting signing things when he did a film and i think because he was probably like uh he pro was probably just shy and embarrassed like to you know for people to friggin just fall to their knees and friggin do the we're not worthy fucking chant thing to him um he just seemed like a very private guy and even obviously towards the end of his life he obviously didn't promote any kind of illness that he had and he kept it to himself i mean he was posting on his instagram days before he died which is shocking um, Posting of his cat. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but when, uh, for some reason, I remember it being, uh, obviously the next day was, I think, Brian's birthday and we were all hanging out and no one would really, we were just all out of it. It just seems so weird because you never meet the guy, you don't hang out with him, you're not fucking, you're not having coffee with him, you're not fucking, you can't count how many fucking, uh, you know, uh, moles he had on his face or whatever because you, you never fucking sat down and had a goddamn cup of joe with the guy but you know it, it did affect our uh our little uh core group when we were hanging yeah, out the that, day after and, that, and, and that's the power of film i feel like not to sound cheesy but you know to, to have never met these people um but for them to have affected your your life so profoundly to have um, to this day, they still they still impact our, our lives. We still watch Wes's films just like we watch George's films and Toby's films, and like we'll still watch Carp's films for years to come. You know, there, there's not going to be a part of our. I, I can't anticipate, imagine any time in any of our lives where we'll not be watching these films. Um, exactly. You know, I feel like that's sort of ingrained in us. It's a part of who we are. So yeah, you do feel um, just a genuine love and gratitude for these filmmakers because of all the memories they've they've created for you and for us and you know they brought us together as friends and you know it, it made my childhood so special the nightmare on elm street franchise in particular um and just 
having this 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 gratitude and this this passion um it, it definitely hurts when they pass away even if like you said you, you you weren't particularly friends with them but in some ways you still feel like you knew these people because of the amount of themselves they put into their films so it does feel like losing a friend in some ways yeah now i guess to to leave it uh tell uh tell the audience a story about the uh the extra, the stationary pad uh, note that you got written to you from Wes, uh, then kind of how that all came to fruition, like uh, you contacting Wes. Obviously, none of us meeting him, but you actually uh, getting, a, I believe, uh, like a fan mail address, or, or or what was it, John? What what what? I I don't. I, I think you know Craven. Towards the end of his career, um, him and his wife had their own production company that sort of. Um, behind the scenes were responsible for his films and i just remember writing you know stumbling across that address and writing wes a letter not really expecting to ever hear back from him um but just just telling him a lot of the things that i've I've shared with you and your listeners here about how much of an impact his his films had on me and my upbringing and, and and how nostalgic i am for for those times and and how much i reminisce about the days where you know i'd go down to that mom and pop video rental store with my grandparents and rent these movies and you know they would allow me to watch them and they'd always be skeptical this is too violent you know but they would allow me to do it just because you know i was behaved and and that was my the, my my reward that was the one concession they made what let allowing me to watch these r-rated films and i remember just just sending him a heartfelt letter and and just telling him you know thank you for that because i know um a lot of times this the movie making business can can be a thankless a thankless job you're only as good as your last movie you know people tend to forget all your previous contributions when you put out a bomb you know a turkey you know you, you put out a shitter and everyone's like ah you know he's all washed up he sucks you know so i think it was at a time where um in his in his life you know this was you know several years before he passed away i think but it must have just resonated with him and you know sure as sure enough i received a a package back in the mail from him and um you know he had sent me a few signed things a nightmare on elm street something or other and um you know uh something from scream which obviously i still have and i i still have the note that he wrote me on his hand wrote on his his west craven it said a note from west craven it was like his his home stationery and and just wrote me a note and just expressed his his appreciation for taking for me taking the time to write to him and he said actually you know i have a um, a good a good friend of mine who's raising her grandchildren right now. And I thought your letter was powerful enough that I made a copy of it and shared it with her to sort of motivate her that it is worthwhile to, to, to do these things. And there is a lasting impact on the kids. And, you know, I just thought that that was really cool. Somebody who, who, who by no means had to write me, take the time out of his day did. And, um, I think that, that that's just a statement on who Wes Craven was, you know, he wasn't about, the money necessarily he was he was just somebody who really genuinely appreciated the process and appreciated his fans and to me that's of all the things i own you know all these movie props and memorabilia and autographs to me that handwritten note from wes craven's the uh, most important thing i have in my entire collection it's something i treasure well, and that's something he's, you know, what a what a, a testament to the kind of person he still remained, even in his uh, 
even in his twilight years when he said, you know, I I framed the the note that you wrote because I want to express to her, you know, how pivotal the you know showing young kids these films are in the kind of character building and like formation it really does you know have in creating you know memories and you know creating those moments that are going to become nostalgia uh you know and uh you know i i often find myself watching you know whether it be uh whether it be The Last House on the Left or Nightmare on Elm Street or Shocker, and I almost I almost get lost in the films because I'm remembering the times when I first saw them or remembering people at this point, you know, who had who have passed on, who I remember watching it, uh, you know, with or or just uh, certain memories of my youth and finding these films, and I find myself, you know, kind of getting in a a thousand yard stare mode where I kind of kind of get lost and you know. I got to snap back into it and actually watch the film because I'm thinking about all this, like, all this stuff, uh, you know, that's related and correlated to the, you know, the nostalgia of all the film filmmakers and the movies and everything. And, uh, yeah, he's uh, he's sorely missed for sure. And he's definitely uh, talk about a guy that's made uh, an impact and just seemed uh, as does Carpenter, as did Toby Hooper, as did uh, George Romero, all seemed very, very normal guys with normal aspirations and are all simply filmmakers who made memorable films. Yeah, it's 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 nice. It's refreshing to see people that are so um, are so humble and are still gracious, even having achieved such levels of success. And uh, Wes was one of the good ones, and certainly is is sorely missed. And I don't think they'll ever be. I think that's why we revere these guys as the big four, is because I certainly don't see anybody in the modern horror field who can even come close to these guys except for maybe a James Wan, you know, with Insidious and Conjuring and Saw. I think outside of James Wan, I'm not saying that horror seems bleak by any means because you definitely see some great films every year coming out. It, this year, was was huge. The biggest horror film of all time, from my understanding, box office-wise. But I just don't, I don't see any more Cravens coming out of the new crop of filmmakers. I don't see any... Uh, more Carpenters or, uh, you know, George Romero's or Toby Hooper's. So, um, you know, in that sense, I think their films will last forever because you just, there's nobody could replicate what they've achieved. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, there's not much more to say. We've, uh, we've said it all about Wes, but I'm sure we could go on another two hours, but John, thanks for, uh, thanks for taking the time to kind of talk Wes. I know, uh, I know you and I will continue to talk Wes as as we have before this podcast uh, as well. So, you know, his memory is living on right now. We just dedicated two hours of our lives uh, to kind of just discussing him. So uh, if there's any testament to the kind of person you are for two guys to sit here and talk about you after you've been dead for uh, over two years, uh, you know, that's obviously you have a lasting impact. Oh, for sure. And it's, uh, it's always a pleasure. Um, I love talking uh, film with you and your listeners, and uh, obviously Wes uh, being one of the best examples of a of a true filmmaker. So, thanks again for having me on. Hey, of course, brother. Thank you again. All right, have a good night. You too, man. Bye bye. 
yeah, so that is uh, that. This is the end of this episode. I want to thank everyone for listening and uh, another two-hour spectacle. This one, obviously, at this point, uh, we're just awaiting our uh, John Carpenter episode, which will be up soon, uh, and then we'll, we will have covered the uh, the big four. Man, uh, what an accomplishment to get this all these guys in. I hope, uh, hope everyone uh, is going to enjoy what we got in store, the John Carpenter episode coming up uh, soon after this one. Uh, po- should be posted the same day, uh, so which is Sunday. Um, and uh, also we have a wrestling special on Bret Hart uh, because we're just mixing it up. Uh, we got some wrestling fans. Um, and... Uh, yeah, what better time to cover Bret Hart than, uh, you know, the November Survivor Series month, uh, which was last Sunday. Um, but I want to thank everyone for listening. We are at Heart Guide Media on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, feel free to follow uh, iTunes and Heart Guide. You can listen to the podcast. Um, rate, review, subscribe. Uh, yeah, send me, uh, send me likes, send me PM, send me DM, send me ats, and, uh, yeah, I want to thank everyone, and what a, what an imprint Wes has left, and, uh, I'm gonna kind of leave everyone with a, a little clip of Wes just talking about being a filmmaker, because he was simply that, uh, uh, a filmmaker, and, uh, a damn good one, and, uh, someone who's going to be uh, remembered and uh, missed uh, forever. Uh, But thanks for stopping by. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting. And I hope everyone enjoys this this episode. And uh, long live Wes Craven. Well, I have a very sort of ambivalent view of myself as, um, as an artist or as a filmmaker. I mean, Somebody once, when I was first starting in films in New York, says, if you want something on your gravestone and you're in the film business, I think the best thing is filmmaker. If you can honestly say that, that's all you need to say. And that's, that, I think, what I would like that on my gravestone, along with whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Um, beyond that, I, I don't think it's possible to, or, or advisable, or even smart to call yourself an artist or talk about yourself as an artist. I mean... Uh, First of all, the, the, it's a business, and uh, to forget that or ignore it or act like it's not there is, is just idiotic. Um, and secondly, it's, it's, it's very difficult to know what will later be judged as art. I, I guess what I've tried to do is I've tried to make movies where I can honestly say I haven't seen that before, and to follow... Um, my deepest intuitions and uh, in some cases literally my dreams um, so that I don't feel like I'm copying something that's come before me and uh, to try to do things that uh, you know speak to sort of the the areas outside the fences you know where the wild animals are are still because I it seems to me that the things that move us historically, both personally and nationally, are those things, those things that aren't on the grid of rationality. It's funny, you know, having traveled now in a lot of third world countries, and I just came back from Africa, it's like you see that every civilization has its own grid of what it thinks reality is and what uh, its proper behavior and uh, what is civilized. and usually what happens is that sooner or later that grid is shattered 
and uh, you know something like World War II happens, or you wipe out the Native American population, or you know Spain invades South America and decimates virtually every living creature there and takes over. You know, and then suddenly it's the grid is back and we're civilized and we're religious and we're this and that. But um, there seems to be a deeper grid that I've tried to find, and that is how how the engine of life really works. And I think it it works a lot off of violence, like it or not. And it works off a lot off of um, things that are not rational and very difficult to perceive and in some ways can only be sort of a dumbrated, a, a sort of sketched and shadow played in, in films and in uh, horror films. And it's not something I'm terribly happy about. I wish, I wish the world did run so there weren't uh, Bosnias and there weren't uh, Rondas and there weren't uh, Selmas and but it that seems to be the way it goes about its business at significant times and uh, to try to capture that in symbols on film and uh, to sometimes succeed I think is uh, is very exciting and gratifying beyond that I have no idea whether anything I've done is of any significance or not you know it's like it's like the end of Casablanca in a way, you know, we probably most of what we do doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Um, but it's been fun. It's been fun to be in the, uh, in the business and to survive. It's been fun to sit in the back of audiences and watch them scream and jump and laugh. Um, it's always gratifying to see how smart the audiences are because quite often my audiences are the outcasts, you know, the kids with the long hair and, and blacks and Hispanics and, uh, people that society thinks, you know, uh, discounts, and they're quite often the, the absolute quickest to grasp what I'm doing, much faster than the civilized critics and people that supposedly are supposed to have heads on their shoulders. So that's a good that's a good sign for civilization. I think ultimately the great civilization, which is whatever will allow us to survive, is that uh, you know in the streets, in the uh, theaters of the most popular movies, are very very smart people. Um, smart kids, and uh, that's encouraging.